Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Bradley and welcome back into another episode of Let's Dive Deep. Today we are going to be continuing our deep dive into the hit Netflix series Bridgerton and discussing the fifth episode of season one entitled The Duke and I, which... Five for Five is another great episode title. Obviously, it's a little on the nose for this episode, but it's the title of the book this show was based off of, so that's awesome. It's, it's cool to slide something like that in there. Just a quick reminder before we get started this evening or morning or afternoon. To be honest, I have no idea when you're listening to this. I'm recording this in the evening. I even got a whiskey for this one. This felt like a whiskey episode, so I'm going to be sipping on a whiskey as we record this. But let's dive deep. Contains adult content. Uh, for instance, in this episode, Benedict gets, well, Benedict. So if you don't want to talk about that any farther, now is a great time to click off the podcast. Also, highly don't recommend you listen to this around kids. Again, not my prerogative, but if I had to make a recommendation, I would say keep the kiddos away. Keep their ears away from this episode of Let's Dive Deep. As always, we will not be spoiling anything that happens past this episode, so no matter where you are on your Bridgerton journey, do not worry, you are safe here. If you are coming to the podcast after each episode, you're good. I'm not going to spoil anything that happens past this episode. I hardly know what happens past this episode, so that's fine. But if you're coming, you've watched all of Bridgerton, you've come to this podcast, it's all good. Just know that I'm not going to be saying anything that happens past this episode. So I might be guessing at things or saying things that don't really make sense. It's because I only know what happens up to episode five. So if anything happens in the last three episodes, it'll sound kind of funny if I'm wrong, but that's the reason why. And finally, before we get going, if you would like to interact and say hello and just let me know what you think about Bridgerton, you can hit me up on Twitter at Let's Dive Deep. That's also a great way to find out what podcast we are going to be doing after Bridgerton, because once Bridgerton's done, you know, we're doing these eight episodes. We are doing an end of season wrap up. We're going to do a few little top five podcasts here or there to keep Bridgerton going a little bit. But we will have other podcasts in different feeds for different TV shows and different movies. So if you want to find out what that's all about, you can hit up our Twitter at let's dive deep if you would like to let me know what you thought about this episode of bridgerton you can email me at let's dive deep pod at gmail.com i would love to read your emails and, and maybe even feature them on the podcast if i think they'll add to the discussion and finally if you're listening to this on apple Podcasts or anywhere else where you can leave a review definitely go over to the review section preferably rate it five stars but hey rate it whatever you like and j just leave a review just be like hey this canadian guy he's a bit strange he talks for episodes of bridgerton for longer than they actually are which is crazy i don't know why he's even doing this but i loved it five stars would be perfect as mentioned previously, this is the fifth episode of season one entitled The Duke and I. It was written by Joy C. Mitchell and directed by Cherie Folkson, who directed the last episode. Isn't that neat? In terms of scoring this episode, I think I have to give it a 7.9. This was an episode that was trying its best to be an 8.5, I think. And yet I, I left it feeling like it was a 7.9. Still a great episode of television. Loved it just as much as I loved the last one. So many things I, I really enjoyed that we're going to talk about. But it just didn't click for me. There are just a few too many outstanding things that just didn't really click together for me. And so I think a 7.9 is perfect. Great episode of television. Really loved it. Lots to talk about. Really getting deep into the relationships between all of our characters and how that's going. But... In terms of what, what this episode could have been, 
I think it could have been an 8.5, and yet I feel after watching it that it's a 7.9. So I'm going to go with 7.9. Again, all these ratings are up for interpretation because the ratings might change depending on how the episodes fit together once we have the whole picture. So in our season recap, I'll be adjusting my ratings of each episode to, to see how they to correlate now that we'll know the whole picture. But for right now, I think this one sits at a 7.9. As always, there was so much that worked for me this episode. I'm going to try and be a little more specific this time and actually pick just a couple of things. Really what worked for me the most and the thing that I felt was the real strong point of this episode was the direction. The use, specifically the use of the camera and the camera lens and the camera angles in this episode was superb and it really helped add another layer to the production, but it also helped set up these scenes in a way that we could understand what was happening. It, in, in a show, don't tell way. I know I talk about that a lot, like show me, don't tell me. You have a couple of shots with the queen. It happens a couple of times where you're introing the queen and the camera angle starts from below her. It happens the most in the scene where she's in the hallway and the butler's running up with the whistle down paper. But there is a second scene where it happens. I just can't remember it off the top of my head. But the camera comes from below her and looks up at the queen to give her this kind of daunting, tall... Um, imposing presence. She is the queen. She is in charge. And the camera angle lets you know that without telling you that. You know that. They know that. We all know that. But the camera angle sets up the scene. So as you go into the scene, you know for sure that she is in charge. And I really like the use of the camera there. There's a couple of other shots when... Daphne and uh, Miss Cowper are talking at the Modiste. There's a sense that they're trying to talk in quiet, alone, in a, in a private, personal conversation. And the, the way the camera kind of looks through the poles that are holding up the fabric, it gives you the sense that you're trespassing on that scene, that you're not meant to be there, that you've snuck in behind to listen to this private conversation that you're not meant to be privy to. And I could just keep going on the Danbury shot later too when she's explaining to, to Daphne and Simon and she's standing right in the middle of them and she is the divider between Daphne and Simon and she's telling them what they're going to need to do to secure their marriage license and it adds another kind of daunting imposing presence but it helps to, it helps to let you know that Daphne and the Duke are split. They are not um, a partner or they're not partners in this right now. They are split up. Um, their thoughts are split. They're not talking to each other. They are not interacting with each other. Uh, whatever the opposite of synergy is, that is what they have right now. And, and Lady Danbury standing in the middle of that frame lets you know all of that. Between that and their faces, you don't need to be told that they're tired, that they're sad, that they're, they have a lot going on in their minds, that they're both trying to figure this out. Because Lady, the way it's set up, the way it's framed, Lady, Lady Danbury standing in the middle of that shot, the way their faces look as she's kind of scolding them a little bit about what they're going to have to do. Beautiful use of the camera in this episode to really enhance what we were watching on the screen. I'm going to do something I haven't done before. This podcast is just a free-flowing thing. I don't script too much of it. I have my episode notes and then I just talk. And a lot of the things I feel about the episode actually come out as I talk about them. I don't have them written down. I just have my basic notes about what happens and then whatever I say on the podcast kind of gets immortalized as my final thoughts. In terms of the rest of what worked for me, just everything. I liked everything in this episode. There's no one specific moment in the episode where I'm like, man, 
I wish we hadn't got to that. I wish that was in a different episode. I wish I didn't have to deal with this right now. The content was great. The pace was great. The attention, like we got like 70% Daphne and the Duke, but we had a couple little excursions with Benedict, which we will definitely talk about. And Eloise and Penelope and Marina, but it never felt like too much. Just everything kind of worked for me this episode. But then in terms of what didn't work for me, also just kind of everything. I feel like this episode, again, it was trying its best to be an 8.5. It had everything in there it needed to just really blow me away. And it, it was just kind of another really good episode of Bridgerton instead of a really great episode of Bridgerton. And there were some pieces to it that just kind of clunked together for me. And it's, it's maybe just how I'm feeling about the Daphne-Duke relationship. Up until this episode, it has really, really worked for me. At this point, it's not not working for me, but I have so many questions that I just think as I was watching this episode, all of these questions kept popping into my mind. Like, why isn't he saying this? Why isn't she explaining this? Why isn't whatever? And I just kept having those why, why, why questions. And that kind of took away from that relationship. For me, this episode, this is the perfect episode whose rating might be higher in retrospect because as these questions get cleared up, Right? I have a lot of questions. If I get a lot of answers, then this this will be perfect, and this will be an 8.5. But as of right now, I have too many questions about what's happening with the Duke and Daphne, and too many thoughts on their relationship that are unresolved, that I think I need to wait and see before I go any higher than a 7.9. But everything worked for me, and everything kind of clunked along and didn't work for me, and I don't know how else to explain it other than that. I'm sure, as we dive deep into this episode, which we're going to do right now, we will figure it out. You see, Your Majesty, it was love at first sight. It was not, Your Majesty. The young lady flatters me. It was not love at first sight for either of us. There was attraction, certainly, at least on my part. But Miss Bridgerton thought me presumptuous, arrogant, insincere, all fair, really. And I thought her a prim young lady barely out of leading strings, not to mention the sister of my best friend, and so romance was entirely out of the question for both of us. But in so removing it, we found something far greater. We found friendship. You see, Miss Bridgerton and I have been fooling all of Mayfair for quite some time. We have fooled them into thinking we are courting. And really, all along, we simply enjoyed each other's company so much we could not stay away from one another. I had never been a man that much enjoyed flirting chatting or indeed talking at all with Daphne, Miss Bridgerton. Conversation has always been easy. Her laughter brings me joy. To meet a beautiful woman is one thing, but to meet your best friend and the most beautiful of women is something entirely apart. And it is with my sincerest apologies, I must say it took the prince coming along for me to realize I did not want Miss Bridgerton to only be my friend. I wanted her to be my wife. I want her to be my wife. And so I plead with you not to make us wait. Simon, you are wise. Or perhaps unusually lucky to understand friendship to be the best possible foundation a marriage can have. Even if that foundation should crumble as quickly as it was built. 
I really enjoyed the opening to this episode. It was very fun. Daphne is coming back from the duel. This episode picks up right where we left off last time. And she's undressing and she's trying to get into bed and she's undoing these cool boots. I didn't know... I guess they must be riding boots or something. I have no idea, but she's undoing these really complicated looking boots and her maid comes in and she pretends to yawn and wake up. And that's all very funny and charming. We move on to a scene with hungover, super hungover mama Bridgerton, which is awesome. And she's, she's trying to fake it. She, I don't know why she needs to have any shame in this scene. She's mama freaking Bridgerton. She can do whatever she wants, but she's pretending that she caught whatever Daphne had. And I thought that whole exchange was really, really cute. Her maid, not Rose, who is Daphne's maid, but the lady of the house, I guess, I don't know what the word for the, the help, I have no idea. I still don't know what to call these people. They call them so many different things, or the subtitles call them so many different things that I'm not really sure. Anyways, the help suggests raw eggs and garlic. I'm more of like a double-double and like greasy McDonald's breakfast kind of guy for a hangover. But raw eggs and garlic, I don't know, will that work? You, someone should try it. This is your challenge. After you listen to this episode, you're going to go and you're going to get super boozed up. Just find whatever you got and just drink lots of it. Wake up tomorrow morning. You're going to try raw eggs and garlic. Mix it however you like. They bring it later in a glass. I'm not sure that's the best best way to do it. I might have mixed it into like an omelet, or I guess that needs to be raw eggs. Anyways, whatever you got to do, you're going to try it, and then you can email me, and you guys can let me know, is this a good hangover cure? It sounds awful to me, but maybe for science... Somebody who listens to this would be willing to give it a go because I am not going to try that. Daphne tells her that she is engaged and at first she's a little too hungover to care. She's like, oh, well, isn't that just lovely? You're going to be a princess. Like She's just like, yeah, 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 whatever. I am so hungover. Can you please stop talking to me? And then it's the Duke. And then it's the Duke. And she's like, oh, shit. Okay. Okay. What is happening here? And they move on to a part where Daphne is asking her mother about getting married quickly. Like, yeah, can we speed this thing up? Like, how am I ever meant to wait a month? And then and then she says nothing untoward is, or nothing is wrong other than, yeah, the duel. I don't know if we're going to mention that to Mama Bridgerton. The, the duel was a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a deal, if you didn't realize, Daphne. I like how she's trying to lie to her mom, but we as the audience just know, like, shut up, Daphne, that's not true. Right. Also, Mama Bridgerton would like shit because she was mad that Daphne went to a boxing match. Imagine how mad she'd be if Daphne showed up at a duel that her eldest son was a part of. That would have just she would have absolutely blown up. The part of this I don't understand. And question number one for this episode is Lady Bridgerton thinks Daphne and the Duke have had sex or done sexual things. Because that is why she thinks Daphne wants the special license. Which is true. That is true. Which brings me to the most frustrating thing. It's the only thing I don't understand about Mama Bridgerton. And it only gets more confusing the more I think about this episode. Mama Bridgerton already thinks those two have been at least mildly sexual. Why? I do not understand why she doesn't just sit Daphne down and explain sex to her right now because we know that Daphne has no idea because there's a whole scene later where Daphne is, is kind of getting told but it gets interrupted and then the way she looks at a penis later, you just know she has no clue. We already knew she had no clue. We we definitely get confirmation she has no clue and it it boggles my brain that Lady Bridgerton thinks 
that they have had sex or close to it because she says that her and her husband also did that. And so she says society wouldn't think or society says one thing, but often does another. I can't remember what she says, but it, it doesn't compute in my brain that she is pro them having been doing stuff and getting married early, but also just completely against giving her basic information, like a five minute anatomy lesson. I don't understand the disconnect between being okay with it and then doing such a terrible job or just being completely unwilling to explain it. I don't know. Let's move on. The queen gets a little bit of news now. There's a very funny scene where the uh, butler for the queen, the, the dude who gossips a lot, is running with the Lady Whistledown pamphlet. And what I liked about this scene was the use of the narrator, Lady Whistledown. You know, she's saying something really cool, but the queen's thinking something different. Lady Whistledown's talking about how uh, Daphne is going to be with the duke and how she never doubted it. And Lady Whistledown is so smart. And the queen is talking about her success with the prince and how it's going to be the biggest wedding ever and i like the contradiction there and when the queen gets the news she is not happy about it at all back at the bridgerton house <laughs> hyacinth is asking daphne what it's like to be in love and eloise butts in to say something like it's fall it's like falling out a window and shattering on the ground isn't that correct daphne i laugh i laughed out loud so hard when she said that that was perfect line delivery from the actress that plays eloise because that was so funny and then daff again i was supportive of this in episode one i'm still supportive of this laying down to eloise who does not want to be anything like Daphne, that, hey, what I'm doing with the Duke right now makes it so much easier for you to find nice, rich, upstanding people in this world. Can you just shut up and let me do my thing? Like, she is laying it down. Like, hey, Eloise, I know you don't like this. Hyacinth loves this. I love this kind of stuff. I know you don't. But hey, as long as you're going to have to be a part of it, could you at least be a little appreciative that I'm doing my best to make it as easy as possible for you. And I, I like it because obviously she's not doing it for Eloise at all. She's doing it for a million other reasons, but it also just happens to work out that she's correct about this whole making it easier for Eloise thing. So I like that Daphne's just still laying it down. The prince comes to see Daphne and this confuses me because now they get to be alone in the room. So this is these are the types of things that don't click for me. It's, it's this kind of stuff. So she is standing with the prince alone in a room Hyacinth happens to be spying on them, but they're definitely alone. Why is this allowed? If this is allowed, why do they do the calling in front of so many other people? Like, if it's a room that doesn't have closed doors, is that okay? I have no idea what the rules of being alone and not being alone are, and I wouldn't care so much if the show hadn't been doing such a, a heavy-handed job of trying to get me to care. Like, it's a big deal that Daphne's alone with the Duke in the garden. It's a big deal that Daphne is alone with Mr. Burbrook. Like, these are, this is a big deal. And yet she's just alone with the print. I have no idea. I don't understand how the being alone thing fully works. That's okay, though. What we do learn is that the prince is a really nice guy. And I love this because there was real competition. The Duke... And the prince, the prince is better for Daphne in every single way. Higher status, richer. The queen even says it later, you're a prince. He's just a mere duke. Definitely very kind. Wants the same things as Daphne. But the duke is the sexy duke. 
He's the sexy duke, and now they made out in a garden, and apparently making out in a garden means you have to marry each other, and that's what they're doing. So I like that the the prince continues to be a little a little bit competitive and a reasonable choice. It would have really sucked if the prince just all of a sudden became an asshat about this. So I really like how he was kind before, he's kind after, and I enjoyed I enjoyed this very much. The Duke and Daphne decide it is time to promenade. Something about the scene tells me it was not their idea because they both look rough. The Duke shows up late. Lady Danbury scolds him and, and <laughs> complains that he's hungover or something, which was awesome. And Daphne and the Duke look miserable. Like they both have had the worst night of their lives. They look tired exhausted just mentally drained they can't even hold a conversation with each other she's trying to bring up the raw eggs and garlic which you know, i brought it up earlier you guys i really want somebody to try it and let me know how it goes but they just can't we're used to seeing them on screen being so dynamic and being so charismatic that seeing them like this where they just can't even make a conversation work it's incredibly jarring in a great way. These are the types of things that I really loved about this episode because it, it's another show-don't-tell thing, right? You can just tell by the, the way they're trying to interact and not being able to do it and the way they're walking and the way the makeup is done. It all, it all really jars you a little bit because you're so used to these two just being like just on fire when they're on screen together and now they're just so not and it's very, very... Uh, jarring is the right word. I'm going to say it a lot. I'm going to say the same word a lot of times because I'm Bradley and this is my podcast. It's very jarring. A couple of other families in society decide to come up and mention children, which is just straight up rude. I guess I get the sense that in this world that children are like the main the main deal, right? Marriage is cool, but children are the main thing you're looking for, which is a lot of the sense I get of the time and of, of many period pieces. It's not just this show, but... It does really suck in this situation where, you know, Daphne thinks that uh, they're not ever going to be able to have kids because Simon just physically can't have kids. And it's just a source of, of pain for her instantly when this with, when this family mentions it. And it becomes a, a running theme through this episode. Anthony's going to mention it later. Oh, you guys are going to have a brood that'll, that'll rival mothers or something. And it, you can see every time just the pain on Daphne's face. It's really well acted. The Duke just looks just so heartbroken in this, in this, like... Like, heartbroken in the what-have-I-done kind of way. And then she goes to grab his hand. He pulls it away. It's just a fucking mess. This whole scene is amazing, and it's just a mess of a relationship between the Duke and Daphne. Anthony, go <laughs> Anthony goes to the modiste, and I have no idea why this scene is in this episode. I have to assume we're going to see Sienna again later, which is great. I love Sienna. If we could just get rid of Marina and replace her with Sienna, I would love like a fully fleshed out Sienna storyline. So Anthony shows up at the Modiste being a good guy. You know what? Full credit to Anthony. I will postpone my Anthony hatred for a hot minute here. Good work. He's showing up. He doesn't have to leave. He didn't die in the duel, any of that stuff, but he's still going to pay... Uh, and take care of Sienna. So well done, Anthony. And the modiste is just pretty much like, yeah, get the fuck out of here, dude. She doesn't want anything to do with you. She's moved on. She lives somewhere else. Like, haven't you done enough? Can't you leave her alone? At which point in my notes, I was like, you're doing a good thing, Anthony. But yeah, it's probably time to leave her alone, mate. Mr. Featherington, who's still reading that newspaper. This is the this is the Featherington I like. Not the rude Mr. Featherington, the aloof newspaper reading, tobacco smoking, doesn't give a shit about anything. They can re-wear their dresses multiple times. 
Mr. Featherington because he's there not paying any of his bills. I think we know at this point it's because he has no freaking money because he's been terrible at gambling, which we learned in the last two episodes. Did that one little scene and then you had the whole boxing thing. So he has no money and he's not paying his bills at the modiste this pisses off mrs featherington for obvious reasons but when he mentions when he mentions that they're gonna have to re-wear dresses which i assume are very expensive miss featherington looks like she's gonna drop kick him in the teeth like as if that is the worst possible thing he could have said and as if re-wearing dresses is the worst sin you it's a, it goes like one a being alone in a room with a guy 1B, re-wearing a dress. Those are the two most offensive things you can do in this world because she looks just completely shell-shocked that he would even suggest that. I think this scene is mostly just here, though, so you 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 keep up with the fact that the bills aren't being paid, he has no money, and Miss Featherington is pissed off about it. This leads into Colin continuing to be... If Colin has a come-down in the next three episodes, I... I don't even know what I'm going to do because this man is my hero. Colin shows up and he's so nice and he's so kind and he's calling on Marina and he brought flowers and he even says, I bring you flowers every time and yet you act so surprised each and every time. Isn't this romantic? He is so lovely and kind and sweet. He starts chatting to Marina and then Penelope cuts in and I just Penelope, listen, listen, Penelope. I know you watch this or listen, you watch this podcast, listen to this podcast I, I know what you're doing. I understand what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing. I think you're going a little bit on the rude scale when you're just blatantly interrupting conversations. Now, I still don't understand, especially once we saw the Daphne Prince situation earlier, why they do this calling in a room full of your siblings. But as long as they're going to do that, Penelope, just wait till after. You're making good points. You're making very good points. Everything you say to Miss Featherington about trapping Colin and how it's bad and Colin's too young and all of that, great points. But just a little subtlety. A little bit of subtlety will go a long way. And she's right. What Marina is doing to Colin is terrible. She is doing a bad thing. Now, I do relate to her a little bit. Or I can understand where she's coming from a little bit in the sense she is trying to do the best thing for this child that she is going to have. And it is in her interest and the child's interest to trap someone like... She's going to have to trap someone anyway. So trapping someone like Colin, who's nice and kind, and be a good husband and father, however, probably begrudgingly, after he finds out that this is all a ruse, at least he'll be good and kind. Whereas this other teeth-looking guy, Lord Rutledge, he is going to be terrible for... It's a long time, right? So I think I understand what Marina's trying to do, but... I got, you got to agree with... I think you got to agree with Penelope in this scene. We have a crisscross scene next in which Rose, who is Daphne's hand servant, ladies maid, soon to be the Duchess's ladies, hand servants maid. I do not know what the titles of these people are. I'm going to keep saying that until I get it explained to me because I am confused. Anyways, she is running around the kitchen having a million questions asked of her about the wedding, about the party, about what Daphne needs. And you can tell she's a little bit out of her depth, but she's learning, she's trying, she's a good she's a good soul, she's doing her best. And that's kind of interwoven with Daphne being at the Modiste getting her wedding dress done. Now I have a question here. We're going to talk about Lady Cowper in a second. I want to stick with the five night dresses point. This is clearly a sex thing. 
Miss Bridgerton brings this up that because she's getting married, she's going to need five night dresses and heavily insinuates or implies that these night dresses are necessary due to the sex that she's now going to have with her husband. I, for the life of me, cannot understand. Are night dresses just like pajamas? Like, hey, that whole corset business, that sucks. Do we want to do that every time? Like, everyone just has night dresses. Like, is that what it is? They're just, it's just kind of more accessible and makes it easier. But like, what do you sleep? You sleep in a shift, right? What's the difference between a night dress and a shift? And why specifically do we need one night dress i guess it's because they don't do i have so many questions about these night dresses i really what i really need is a female co-host to just hop in and explain this kind of stuff to me because i i'm confused about the difference between a shift and a night dress i understand why having something like that is more intimate are night dresses like lingerie i'm i'm do, let's do this in real time night dresses must be lingerie and shifts must be like just like a normal bra and, and like if this was real time Real world 2021, where I'm a little more familiar with things. Are shifts like just bra and undies, normal everyday stuff, and night dresses like sexy lingerie kind of stuff? Because I was confused. Let's move on. This just confused me. We don't need to talk about this anymore. But I do need a female co-host who knows these things, because I certainly do not. Cressida shows up to... I don't know, be a dink, just be awful. I just, I put in my notes, fuck off, Cressida, go away. I don't even remember what she said in this scene. This is the scene, though, where we get the cool camera shot through the fabric rods. She's just saying stuff like, oh, do you like going into the garden? I had a perfect view from the terrace. Like, shut up, Cressida. If you had a perfect view from the terrace, then everyone else on the freaking terrace would have also had a view. I get the sense that she didn't actually see them making out that... She was just on the terrace and saw them both go into the garden and then come out later, which leads me to think that um, Daphne should probably bring that up because it's a pretty big discrepancy between just seeing them going into a garden and then actually seeing them in action. I think those are different things. Also, why is Daphne not able to refute this charge if it comes... Again, this just confused me a little bit. I'm not really sure what to make of it, but Crescent is there to be awful and you get a cool camera shot. We get a quick little pop-off to see what the queen's up to, and the queen is pissed that Daphne is not marrying the prince, and she's taking that out on the prince a little bit. The prince has, like, the, the correct take, and is just like, hey, she's happy. I don't need to flaunt my title. I'm a nice guy. She got proposed to by the duke. They seem to be engaged. The queen's like, go fight for her. And I, I, I guess we learn in a minute that what she's able to do about it is stop them from getting a quick marriage license. But I was like, look, just in two episodes ago, the Queen was stoked about the Duke and Daphne. That was like the best possible scenario. So I know it's not her nephew, but surely she's able to just be a little bit happy about this one. I appreciated, though, that she was committed to her nephew and to her family kind of being the the connective tissue um, between... I don't know what the... That was a terrible analogy. She is committed to her family in this year this season marrying into the family of the diamond of the first water and i appreciate that she sticks to that commitment although it was only two episodes ago that she was completely cool with the duke and daphne so the whole thing is kind of discombobulated a little bit 
Anthony and the Duke have a really lovely and awkward moment. You know, they haven't. It's only been a day, so they haven't seen each other since 24 hours ago. Or not even 12 hours ago when they were trying to duel each other and <laughs> Anthony almost shot him. So it's a little bit awkward. They're talking to each other. We learn a few things. We learn that the Duke is very funny and tells Anthony that he had a better shot of shooting him if he just fired straight into the air, which I thought was hilarious. We also learn that the Duke's not going to take her dowry. Now, I'm not fully familiar with how exactly dowries work, but I do get the sense that this is like ground-shakingly unnormal. The Duke says that he, A, thinks it's a bad practice, but B, just you can put the money in a trust for her. That's all good. I'm going to take care of your sister. I'm going to marry her. So it's nice to see in this moment that the Duke is taking his responsibilities to at least not tell Daphne the truth about the children thing, which we are going to talk about later, but... He's at least committed fully to being kind and taking care of her financially and in all those other aspects. The Archbishop? I want to say it's the Archbishop. Archbishop? Arch... This is a hard word to say, Brad. Archbishop shows up and tells Anthony that, negative, sir, you are not getting a marriage license. The cut to Daphne's face where she just says denied is really, really cool. And then Danbury. Danbury shows up and she's just a she's a walking mood ring she knows when something's up she's been around and she can tell something's not right in the room so she decides this is the other cool shot we're getting here stands right in the middle of Daphne and the Duke at least where the camera's framed she's right in the middle and she just starts going in like shut up you idiots this is not the archbishop it's not his doing it's definitely the queen the queen is just mad that you didn't marry her nephew so if you two can manage it she's a little bit sassy a little bit sarcastic really putting them like hey you two i saw that promenade this morning it was not impressive so if you could go and talk to the queen and not like bullshit your way through it like tell her the truth tell her you're in love she'll know if you're lying and i i like that lady danbury was just telling it like it is like you two need to figure your stuff out because this situation is ridiculous and i appreciated that from lady danbury now we get to one of the most hilarious points of the episode where benedict gets benedict you have no idea how clever i felt when i when i was writing up the notes for this episode and i had to do my little adult content warning and i was like oh my god this is perfect. Benedict shows up at a very artsy swinger party. So this is awesome. It's kind, It's similar to the, the similar scene we got in The Witcher as well. It's, it's a mix between like an artsy swinger party where everyone's just doing stuff out in the open. But it's not really an orgy either. Like it is, I don't, to be fair, to be fair, I'm not firmly familiar with with the definitions and the differences between swingers and what they're doing and what an orgy would be. I'm assuming these are similar things, but not really the same. And there seems to be like undertones of art involved in this. So it's all a little bit weird. But Benedict shows up and he ends up with the modiste. Now, this is concerning. Not because he ends up with the modiste. I think they're really cute together. You know what, Benedict? You go sleep. Be, just be who you want to be with. Sleep with whoever, Benedict. I support you in this endeavor. Be the second born son. The modiste is using her goddamn English accent. Why? Why does she keep switching? If this does not get addressed, this is one of those things that just confused me. If this does not get addressed... In this show, I will lose my mind because she is gone. This is twice now where she's using a pretty heavy English accent. I'm still not even sure. Is she French? 
and then using an English accent when she needs to, or English using a French accent when she needs to. Anyways, what I love is that Benedict couldn't possibly notice the difference because he's never been to the Modiste. And I think that's hilarious that he just, that the men in this world have no clue about anything to do with women. Again, they get to know what sex is, but they don't know about dresses or the modiste. Anthony knows where it is. We learned that earlier, so that's cool. But Benedict just has no idea. Benedict finds out that Granville, Lord Granville, the person who is running the art party, who owns the house, who's who is the author of the paintings Benedict was... Um, criticizing in a, a couple of episodes ago um lord granville is gay or at least bisexual and he's in a room with a man making out and you know what good job mr granville you do you and i i like that because benedict doesn't care so we we can just surmise via the time this show is set in and some of the other things they care about that homosexuality is not accepted so what i love is that this scene has so many people just being accepting of other people you know in 2021 it's very very it's important to me that people are kind and accepting of people right and i it's important to a lot of people not just me but in 2021 you know we don't shame people who are gay or bisexual or transgender we try our best to support them and be allies and, and fight for them when we can. And like those types of things you can't just put in the show, but you can, you can have a room and a building full of people who are just accepting of one another. And I just love that. It's a small thing. It's one of my favorite scenes. And like the swinger party orgy part of it is very fun and funny. And it's a good way to, to do this. But what I took of it was, here is 50 people, 100 people who are just being themselves. This is the one place in this society where they can just be who they are and no one's going to judge them and no one's going to care and no one's going to ruin their social life and no one's going to whatever it is. And I, I really appreciated that sentiment in this show. I don't know if that's what they were intending. That's just what I took from watching this scene. Then we get a two-on-one. Benedict's getting tag team now, except for both tag team people are tagged in. And they are they're with Benedict on the stairs doing their stuff. But we learn later that this person is Mr. Granville's wife. So Mr. Granville, who's gay or bisexual, is making out with a man in another room, but still has to have a wife because it's this society and that's what he needs to do to, to, um, to be a proper gentleman in society. And so I think it's very cool later when Benedict and this wife reconnect because they're like, or she, she knows, but he's like, Oh my God. Oh my God. What have I done? And it's just very, very, very cute and clever. So I, I like this whole scene. I loved everything about this scene. It was very funny, told a good message, had a great theme to it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Will must have won a lot of money in that last boxing match. Cause he is looking just very swanky. He looks really good. Will in this scene looks very good and like a proper gentleman, he shows up and finds the Duke and the Duke has been kicked out of a bar because he's very drunk and he's yelling at the people inside the bar to sing songs and Will takes him away. This leads later into a hangover scene, when we'll, which we'll get to. This is only like a 20, 30 second scene, but Will dressed really nicely, finds the Duke. The Duke uh, is, is yelling and Will is trying to figure out, like, hey, what's surely this isn't so bad. Surely marrying Daphne isn't so bad. So it, it sets up the next scene when we when we see them, which we'll talk about when when we get to it. 
Marina and Mrs. Featherington are still throwing punches. Miss Featherington is still trying to hook up Marina with Lord Rutledge. Marina's like, nah, girlfriend, I do not want to do that. I got this thing with Colin. It's super sweet. Lady Featherington is still making, much like Penelope, good points about the timeline of pregnancy. Hey, even if he proposes, it's going to take months or the courtship will take forever or whatever. And then Marina, Marina, I brought up this. Oh, this isn't even the point with the, is this the point with the loophole? Okay, where is this? I want to get to the point with the loophole. Oh, no, the the loophole is later. The loophole is later. We're going to talk about the loophole later. Anyways, Miss Featherington is still making good points. She's trying to, to get Marina to go with Lord Rutledge to at least meet society standards. You know he's not going to have any questions. He's going to take care of the kid, at least to the best of his ability. He just wants an heir. And those are all the questions he's going to ask. And Marina is trying to be like, look, I don't want to do that. I want to be with Colin. I understand where Marina's coming from, but I just agree with with Lady Featherington more, I think. I think she has the right of the situation. She at least knows what she's talking about, whereas I feel like Marina is just kind of flailing around trying to find anything that works and works for her instead of just something that works. So I appreciate what Marina's doing. I think she has the right to do it. I just think I agree with, with Lady Featherington in this situation. We move on to learn that the king is a real person. Now, his name is George. To which I have the immediate question, is this the same king from Hamilton? It must be. This must be the king from Hamilton, just older now, like at the end of his life instead of at the beginning. But I think this must be the same George, which is wicked cool that I can connect Hamilton to this show with the Ten Dual Commandments and the same King George. How neat. He is obviously has Alzheimer's and dementia or dementia. I think one leads into the other. Again, not an expert on literally anything, but... Anyways, he has some sort of memory uh, inhibition and memory prohibition. Good God, Brad. Guys, this podcast is a rough experience to record. He clearly has a prohibition to his memory. I'm going to assume Alzheimer's, but he's, he's lucid in this moment and he calls the queen Lottie. How cute. I melted. This was the cutest part of this episode. I was a fan of the second silk glove takeoff moment that happens later, but this is just heartbreakingly cute. Charlotte, Queen Charlotte is Lottie. If I ever date a Charlotte, I don't even know. That's just so cute. I was just going to say, if I ever date a Charlotte, then that Charlotte can just pick their own kind of pet name. But, But Lottie is just, man, my heart melted. I thought that was so cute. They talk for a few minutes about their kids, about their past, but it's clear the king is just kind of relapsing into this memory problem, and he accuses her of murdering one of their kids, and it's just... I was legitimately devastated at this point in the episode because it's just heartbreaking. You can tell that the queen really loves him and had such a good marriage up until this point, and really... And you can tell that he loves her too because we have the context that marrying a black woman was not normal, that it was out of the ordinary. And him marrying Charlotte was the reason why people like Lady Danbury can have this high status and the Duke of Hastings can be the Duke of Hastings. And so you get the sense that this is really just once this beautiful love between these two people. And then it's just broken down. And it's just so... I, I don't I don't need to say anything else about this scene. The scene speaks for itself. Absolutely incredibly done. Just all so heartbreaking. Daphne has decided she needs to go for a, a little nighttime stroll in her garden. Not alone with any... There's no more duels. 
There's no more quick makeout sessions in the garden. She's just walking around. Rose, her lady's servant hand, I don't, whatever. She comes up and is talking to Daphne. And Daphne is so worried about the children thing. And I, I cannot stand it that the Duke will not clarify the difference between can't and won't. The difference between can't and won't does not always seem like a lot. And in many cases, it is not. The difference between I can't have kids and I will not have kids is astronomical. That is not a difference that is allowed to go unresolved. And the Duke knows better. The Duke knows so much better than to do this to Daphne. And I don't... Ugh, it just bugs me so much. I want to talk about it again later. Because I think at the end of the episode, there's a moment where it really just really irked. And in a good way. I want to be perfectly clear. This frustrates me in the best way. Characters need to have things that we don't like about them to be compelling. Not everyone's perfect. And this is the Duke's imperfection, right? One of his imperfections is this. But it's working because I find it so frustrating. And I'll give you another example of the difference between can't and won't. I once, many moons ago, like three or four years ago, dated somebody from Australia. Now, I live in Canada. So obviously the distance thing is very difficult to overcome. In that relationship, she was in Canada for the longest time. I went to Australia for a little bit. It was lovely. Had an awesome relationship. Fantastic. We're still like BFFs. Everything's great. But that relationship couldn't quite work. So here we are. And in that relationship, in the middle of that relationship, when I am in Canada and she is in Australia, that whole relationship build, or is built on the foundation of the difference between can't and won't. Cannot and will not. If I cannot go to see her, if she cannot come to see me, right? The relationship works. You can still have a strong, loving, long-distance relationship. The whole foundation of the relationship still works. If, if you two cannot see each other, it's just impossible at this moment. But if you could, you definitely would. That is still a relationship. But if that changes, if that changes, if both people in that relationship go from they cannot see each other to they will not. Like I could, but I got this. I got to go to pancake breakfast tomorrow and it's my mom's birthday in two weeks. And I... I'm just not really sure. As soon as you go, and it's a transition. It's not just a flip. In the show, it's like the 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 difference is literally 100%. But going from cannot to will not is the difference between that relationship. I cannot come and see you implies that you would if you could. And that's where you build that relationship off of. I will not see you is a completely that's like why are we doing this why are we even in this relationship if you will not come to see me why why am i even in this relationship with you it's the i cannot express enough how firmly i believe that the difference between cannot and will not is so astronomical that it's inexcusable to me that he doesn't mention it in the best way 
in the best way as in I love that his character has flaws and I love that those flaws are making me frustrated and I love that I get to vent about them on this podcast. But I I think he's not fully appreciating how many things in life are built on the difference between cannot and will not because it's it's so many things. So all the things. It's all the things. Rose hears the news that the Duke cannot have... Ch- at this point, Daphne thinks the Duke cannot... That she does not understand the extent of his physical impediment. So Daphne firmly thinks he physically is not able to have kids. That's how she took that whole conversation from an episode or two ago. Rose is being so... Rose is... Rose is also Colin. There's Colin and then there's Rose Colin. Because Rose is just so nice and kind and explaining that her aunt or her uncle or somebody is in a relationship and they love each other. And it's a very good relationship and they... It's something God has not blessed them with kids, but they still have a happy marriage. And it's just nice in the world to have people that support you and empathize with you and try to help you get through a tough time. And I really appreciated that Rose was doing that for Daphne. As we open the scene where Daphne and the Duke need to plead with the Queen for their early marriage license, I wrote in my notes, The Queen loves dogs. I love dogs. Do I love the Queen? Is that how math works? Anyways, Daphne and... The Duke show up with Lady Danbury just just standing beside or behind them, just st- eyes of just just laser beam eyes, just on the back. Are you, oh, it's so good. Lady Danbury's facial expressions in the opening of this scene are so good as she just kind of stands behind them. Daphne gives it her best shot to try and convince the queen that they are madly in love. She's terrible at it. I don't expect Daphne to be good at this kind of thing, but she's doing her absolute best. You can tell that she is really concerned about not having this license and she's trying. And then, and then, and then, the Duke comes in hot off the top rope and delivers the most compelling, heartfelt, honest, raw speech that this queen has ever heard. Because even Daphne looks up to the Duke with a look of like, are those words like, like as if she couldn't even fathom that somebody could so evocatively string those words together in that order. The acting, the writing, everything about this scene is incredible. The, the guy who acts the Duke, just phenomenal acting. I was moved. I would have granted that marriage license ASAP. Daphne, again, looks at him like, oh my god, is this love? I, Simon, like, what are you, like, it's like, it's so poetic. It's a bit over the top, but it it fits. It fits the theme of Bridgerton. It's a little bit over over the top, some of the dialogue, but it's so good, so well acted, so compelling. This is the part of the, these, these little chunks, these little nuggets, I love so much. They're so, so fun. Also, I have a question. Again, this is why I need a co-host who knows things about things. I feel... What are leading strings? Does anyone know what leading strings are? This is the second time this episode that they've mentioned leading strings. And like the 86th time in the show they've mentioned leading strings. And it finally hit me to put in my notes, what are leading strings? In all caps. What are they? What does that mean? Because... In in this episode, I want to say Daphne was just out of leading strings, but also a guy, one of the male characters, was just out of leading strings. So you have, I don't know, I don't, what are they? This is like the night dresses situation. I just don't understand what they are. 
in her acceptance of this, uh, the queen, man, that, that one scene with the king, not only was it so evocative and heartbreaking, but she says, she says what you were feeling in that scene, that however, it's not however fleeting it may be, or no matter how fast it crumbles, but you are blessed to know that friendship builds or is the best foundation for a good marriage. And again, you can just tell that her marriage with the king was so amazing and it just fell apart. I, It's just so hard. Everything about what's going on here in this scene, connecting to the scene uh, back a couple scenes ago with the queen and the king, all of it just, it's emotional. It's a little emotional. I, it's, oh. Just so well done. This is peak, Brid. This was the episode. This part of it was the episode that was trying its best to be like an 8.5. Maybe even a 9. Like somewhere in there. Because this was just incredible stuff. Man, even the Duke at some point says that he didn't enjoy talking. Obviously, we know that's because of his stutter. Oh, the writing is so good. And then um, he says, but with Daphne, conversation is the easiest. Oh, every... Okay, I'm going to... This scene is over. I loved it. I think it's amazing. All of it was just, I'm a puddle of tears. And it, happy tears and sad tears. All the tears. It's wedding time. And before we got to the after party. So before I knew the after bar- party was happening, I put, why so small? Short notice? COVID question mark? I was, how do, how do the Bridgertons and the Duke of Hastings have a nine person wedding? It's like the Bridgerton siblings and Daphne and Lady Bridgerton, and it's Lady Danbury, Will, his wife. And it's just like maybe a dozen people there total. I'm guessing it's the short notice. But, but we move on to the after. Oh, actually, before we go to the after party, in this scene with the wedding, they both look exhausted and tired. And I love this, the way the makeup's done, the way the camera kind of sits on their faces for a little bit, the way they're just kind of staring past each other. Very, very, very interesting that still at this point it's been a couple of days now that you get the sense that it's been a hot minute and they are still just not even able not that they're not trying or maybe they are trying but just that they're not able to click again you're so used to seeing these people just light up on screen that seeing them just be so kind of dark and sullen really 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 jarring i say the word jarring a lot but it's just, it just it's continues to be and i continue to really enjoy it and the music the music in this scene i don't know how to describe it so i won't even try the way that the music overlays with the i now pronounce you husband and wife part of it the music in this scene was some of the best music we've had in this show so far Party time at the Bridgerton house because the wedding just happened, so everyone's got to come over and celebrate. It's nice to see all these people together at a thing that's not a ball, so that's fun. Miss Cowper shows up to say something stupid to Daphne about how I hope you'll remember that I didn't rat you out and ruin your life, and maybe one day you'll owe me. So it's just get Lady Cowper. I hope I never have to see you again. Penelope looking at people for Marina is so funny. This is where it goes from rude to funny. Rude to funny. This is peak Penelope going around and being like, what about him? He's got a nice face. What about him? He has eyes. What about that guy? He's got two thumbs. Like, why can't he be a dad? Like, it's so funny how Penelope's just literally any man. Literally any man. And then Penn just says it. (laughs) I put Penn is saying it out loud in in capital letters, but I didn't put (laughs) space between Penn and is on my notes. Penelope, 
is just saying, oh, you can have any man but Colin. And Marina is wrong here. Marina responds with, well, what am I to do? Because Colin will be nice and kind. And I have to trap somebody. So you would have me trap a lesser man. So I, again, at some point too, this is always a moral question. At what point does doing the wrong thing for the right reasons work? Right? Because at some point it flips. At some point doing the wrong thing for the right reasons flips. Let's say there's a, let's say you live in a country with a government, like Canada or the US or Australia or wherever people live, and that government was planning to do something very illegal. So somebody who works in the government with knowledge of that thing tells the whole world, even though they're not allowed to, they are wrong. They are breaking the law, but they're doing it for a thing that we would consider is good exposing government corruption in which case we'd all agree that was a good brave thing to do so at what point is marina doing that at what point in this whole thing where she's trying to trap colin into is she just doing the right thing for her kid she is stuck she needs a husband colin is the best most naive kindest like the best mix of things she needs to look after her kid and she genuinely likes him at what point is that worth it to her to give her kid the best life possible it's the same type of thing that we have to struggle with so i don't want to just dunk on marina here because i think she's making she's making good points she has a purpose and i understand where she's coming from i'm just still a little bit with penelope on this one i also love this scene because penelope and Marina both have points that I can appreciate. I love scenes like that where characters are disagreeing, but I can understand both points of view. It really pulls at you a little bit. It's like, who am I going to agree with? Who's right? Who's wrong? And then you leave the scene and Penelope and Eloise, they bump into each other and they haven't seen each other since they yelled at each other. or She yelled at Eloise. I can't remember exactly how it happened, but it's also awkward giving you a little callback to earlier when it was awkward between uh, Anthony and the Duke. Marina engages entrapment plan 1.0 with Colin by luring him, feigning that she needs a private, quiet location to go or else she's going to faint or something. She's the art of the swoon. She's art of the swooning with Colin right now. This is the loophole I was talking about when the Duke and Daphne were making out in the garden. I just didn't think a woman would use the loophole. I thought it would be a man with bad intentions. I'm calling it Chekhov's makeout loophole. Her plan to make sure Colin has to marry her is to just kiss him, to just lure him away, no chaperone, and just seduce him into kissing her. And once that's done, they have to get married right away. It is the biggest un... This society needs to close this loophole because this is ridiculous. I appreciate what she's doing here. She's doing, again... Whether you agree with her or not, she has a plan. She's committed to it. She's going about it the right way. Because I saw this loophole coming a mile away. I didn't think a woman would be using it. But I, I'm happy to be wrong. Because this is a good plan from Marina. Colin Bridgerton showing again that he is the best person, human being in this show. Stops what he's doing. Says, no. You're a lady. I'm a gentleman. And then he says, did I offend you? Like, Colin... Just, can we hug Colin? Like, Colin, you're just a, so nice and kind. Oh, Colin's the best. Marina decides that she's got a good, no, you didn't offend me, but whatever, whatever. She's got to go. And then Colin's like, well, why don't you marry me? And Marina failing upwards into this plan because it works. Marina leaves this room having secured the proposal. Now, the makeout loophole 
I think secures a, an earlier marriage, which she needs because of the pregnancy timeline. But hey, more than happy to have Marina fail upwards here. This is the highest I've been on Marina's character for a little bit. This is genuinely interesting stuff. We get a little bit more Bridgerton party stuff. This part, again, another thing that confused me. The queen is hearing Eloise talk about Lady Whistledown. Eloise is accusing Lady Danbury, which is awesome. Uh, Lady Danbury, prime suspect number one for me, too. So I don't know if this is a show trying to tell me, like, hey, this is definitely, she's definitely not Lady Whistledown. Or it's kind of trying to give you a red herring or something like that. But the queen turns to get Eloise to share what she's found. This queen, I'm assuming has the ability to command. Maybe it's just the king that can do this. She has the entire British army who is littered with intelligence officers that she could deploy to find out who Lady Whistledown is. And instead, she's going to go with Eloise Bridgerton. The Bridgertons are not good at figuring things out at all. They are terrible at looking into things. Eloise, not underfunded, doesn't have the resources to do this properly, you have intelligence officers on the payroll. Ask them to figure it out. Surely it can't be that hard. Like, Lady Whistledown must be one of, like, 200 people. There's not a lot of options here. <laughs> I don't understand why she... I guess it's just convenient, and it gives Eloise something to do, but it just... It was one of those things, like, wait a minute. Wait a minute, there's no way the queen would ever ask Eloise Bridgerton for a thing like this, but it gives something Eloise to do, so I'm happy with that. This is also a very funny scene where Benedict finds out that he slept with the modiste and Mr. Granville's wife, and the look on his face, and the way she looks at him, oh my god, just so good. That two-on-one, the two-on-one scene was great, but this is almost better, just the way they look at each other, because the... The wife knows, the modiste knows. I guess the modiste isn't in this scene, but obviously they all know except for Benedict. And Benedict is just finding out right now, and Mr. Granville knows. And Benedict actually does something really cool here because Benedict says, like, um, Lord Granville comes up and says, hey, about what happened? Because if Benedict says anything about the the male-male partnership, that's going to be an issue. And Benedict's like, what do you mean? I don't think anything happened. And, and Granville is like relieved. Like, and I really like that Benedict, much like all the other people, is just supportive of people for who they are and is not judging people and is trying to be understanding, is being understanding. Love it from Benedict. Love, I like this whole interaction. Lots of subtlety there. Lots to pick apart. Lots to feel good about. Anthony decides it's a great time to mention children, which sends Daphne into a funk and she runs upstairs. Lady Bridgerton follows her. And we have come upon my favorite, least favorite scene in Bridgerton history until two scenes later when we get my new favorite, least favorite, favorite scene in Bridgerton history. For whatever unimaginable reason, Lady Bridgerton has decided to leave it till the absolute last possible second to explain sex and anatomy to Daphne. You can tell because she says, I guess I've left this conversation off as long as possible. Mrs. Bridgerton, a little more intent. You have two other, three other daughters. We haven't met one of them yet. I know there's four. I don't know the other one's name. For the love of God. 
Next year, it's Eloise, and who knows how that's going to go. A couple of years later, it's Hyacinth, and wherever the other daughter is, I haven't done the alphabet thing to figure out where she slides in. Do not leave it till the last minute. It is critically important. Also, when she starts describing this, she's really flustered. And maybe this is why she left this off for so long, because she doesn't know how to explain it properly. But when she starts explaining it, she's like, oh, it's really natural. You'll catch on. No one explained it to the thing. And it's like, okay, cool. You think, you already think that they did some sexy stuff. I just, this, it bugs me in a good way. Again, this is another one of those good things. It's just her character flaw. Mrs. Bridgerton's character flaw is just that she doesn't explain these things to her daughters, even though she thinks her daughter's already kind of doing it, and even though she knows it's important. Ugh, it's so frustrating. Then Daphne's asking good questions. Is this physical? Then she finds out, Daphne finds out in this scene that sex is directly correlated to having kids. And so she says, asking great questions, if we cannot have kids, does it stop us from doing the physical act? Now, she should have maybe been a little more clear because Miss Bridgerton just, are you worried about not having kids, yada, yada? This is a good question. Daphne needs an answer to this question before she gets married, not after. Anyways, I love this scene. A little mother-daughter time. It's always hard as a parent. I don't have kids, so I don't know. One day I'll have to do this. To do the birds and the bees talk. I get it. But it's a little late, and it's not sufficient. And if your talk is a little late and not sufficient, those are the two worst things it can be. So, Lady Bridgerton, just please... Please do a better job with Hyacinth and Eloise and the other daughter that we don't know about. (laughs) On her way out, Daphne has to say goodbye to everyone. There's a really cool little interplay here where everyone's kind of coming in front of the camera and saying goodbye and having a different line that feels all part of the same sentence. And it's really, really well written. She gets to Anthony, at which point (laughs) he says, are you even going to miss me? And she says, even you, which at this point I wrote in my notes, I won't miss Anthony. Bye. I'm assuming we get Anthony in the next couple episodes that he's not leaving. But it's actually interesting now that I think about how is Daphne, is Daphne and Simon are leaving Anyways, we'll figure that out for the next episode. But I thought that was a really cute scene. And it leads into the carriage. She gets into the carriage with the Duke. And the Duke decides, uh, this is a good time. Lady Bridgerton style decides, like, hey, I know I haven't told you this. Or Dumbledore. This is very Dumbledore-esque to just not tell someone very important information. I know I didn't tell you this. But we're actually spending our wedding night at an inn. Why? Because where I live is too far. Why have I not told you where I live compared to where you live? I'm not sure why that hasn't come up. It's just weird to me that he just hasn't explained any of this, but that's okay. They're going to the inn. Now, so much happens at the inn. I'm going to try not to talk for another two hours. Getting to the inn, when Daphne first realizes that they have separate rooms, man, some of the best acting around. Just her face instantly just... You just get this shot of, like, it's not pain, it's not fright, it's not sadness, it's like all of them mixed together, and she's, I just put, it's just heartbreaking. I know I've used the word heartbreaking a lot this episode, it's just heartbreaking, and they start both pacing around, he's in his room, she's in her room, and they're both pacing around, she goes to open the door, and boom, he's already there. Yes, everything, everything so far, incredible. This is amazing. 
He then decides he's going to tell her, like, hey, we need to go for dinner. And then Daphne loses her shit in the best way. I put, get fucking mad, Daphne. Do it. Dot, dot, dot. Get so mad. Yes. Yell at him. Fuck him up with words, Daphne. Yes. You go, girl. Were my notes for this scene. She starts going off about everything. Like, why won't you talk to me? Why didn't you tell me anything? I I don't want to try and do the scene justice. You all watched it. It's very, very, very evocative and very well done. Very well written. Very well acted. All of it just perfection. And what I took from this is actually interesting. Because this is not how I felt going into the scene. They both think the other doesn't like them or want to marry them. And they both think that they trapped the other one into marriage. Which I find fascinating. Because throughout the show... I think you're meant to pick a side. Whether that's Daphne or the Duke, I, I'm i not sure. I was firmly on Team Daphne. I'm still firmly on Team Daphne. That she does a little bit of entrapment in like the she just says, like, we're going to get married, I'm not going to have kids type of thing. But he is just straight up being a little bit deceptive, a little bit deceptive, being quite deceptive about the whole children thing. So I'm on Team Daphne in this kind of impasse, this um, ceasefire, if you will. But I find it interesting that as characters, they both think that it's their fault because of course they would. It perfectly tracks. You can trace back each moment in this show up to here and see why they would both feel this way. And I loved it. And then the Duke... And Daphne admit that they burn for each other. I'm not doing this scene justice, and I can't. And I apologize for that. You're just going to have to watch it again. Everyone knows you want to watch it again. And they burn for each other. Now, the Duke in here has some whack-ass poetry. He's got some... Earlier with the Queen, it was perfect. Here, it feels a little out of place for him to have... Like, what I didn't like about the writing in this scene, actually, is he's, like, frantic, and he's high heart rate, just spitting words out. There's no way in this situation he's able to be so eloquent with his words. When he's when it's this hectic and this off the cuff and this kind of raw emotion, right? Think of any time you were just yelling at someone and you're mad and you're angry, especially with a partner, and you're both just stuck in your ways and you're trying to resolve it, and you get to this point, you're not cohesive you're not saying things that make a lot of sense a lot of the time you're not even saying things you really mean so it was a little put offy for me that in this scene the duke is just he's perfectly eloquent he has all these big fancy words for everything it's just not it doesn't feel true to the emotion of this scene for him to have just so much just poetry to just pour out of his mouth anyways i loved it I just think the emotional connection and the writing here, once you get to this burn for you point, doesn't really work. But love the line, burn for you. They burn for each other. Of course they do. And now, now it's sex time. What do two people do when they burn for each other on their wedding night? Well, you know and I know, and it's about to happen on our screen. So I'm going to delve into a little bit of TMI here. But I think it adds to how I interpreted the show, so I'm going to put it in the podcast. And if it's a little too much information, you have my sincerest apologies. Let's Dive Deep contains adult content. In this whole sex scene, it is very well done. The whole thing is very, very well done. I have been on both 
ends of this situation. My first such experience, I was with somebody. I had just turned 15, and I was with somebody that was older than me. She was maybe 15, 15. No, she's 15 and a half, maybe. My best friend, like just super close. She had clear 25 year old me knows now that it probably wasn't that much experience, but she clearly knew what she was doing. And I was the dad. She was the Duke of the scene. And I was the Daphne of the scene where I have no idea really what's going on. Obviously you're kind of a part of the situation, but it's just helping me or it's just helping or it's just happening. Sorry, not helping. It's just happening kind of to you and at you. You're there, you're participating, you're happy to be there, but it's just kind of happening at you and to you, right? And I suspect a lot of people when they have their first interaction like this, that they're also doing it with someone who's also having their first interaction. Whereas this scene is lopsided in terms of experience. And then later in life, later in life, these roles were reversed where I was the Duke of the situation where I had, as mentioned with the with the other anecdote, I had had some experience and the person I was with did not. So from that point of view, being on both ends of that experience, there's a real delicateness to this scene. That's really obvious. I think if you've been in a situation like this and I really appreciated that it felt as I was watching this, I was like reminiscing a little bit. I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. That's exactly what it's like. I'm, there's no Dukes or Lady Bridgertons or whatever. But as the scene was happening, I was like, yeah, that's what this, just the way it was, just the way it was shot, the, the faces the characters were making, the kind of confidence of the Duke mixed with the obvious, like, wanting of knowledge and participation and wanting to be just part of it, but not really knowing what to do or how to do it or anything that whole dynamic the way it just felt felt so true to me that i really really appreciated it for that because if you have sex scenes in your show they have to do something they have to tell you something you 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 run into a problem if your sex scenes are there a for like gratuitous nudity or just sex position it makes your show kind of feel a little bit trashy but there's so much going on in this scene, and I really just enjoyed the the delicateness of which the relationship between Simon, who's confident, who's done this before, who's going to be a kind person and and kind of show Daphne what she needs to know, and Daphne, who has no idea what's going on, right? Like the face that she has when she sees his junk for the first time. Right, it's it's very funny, but it's also it just tells you how little she knows and how poorly she's been prepared for this moment by her mother. But it just felt true. I don't know how else to say it. It felt really true to me. And I, as I was watching this, I was like, "That's perfect. Like that's it. That dynamic is exactly what it feels like." And I I really really liked that. Now, as beautiful and as amazing as this scene is, I think it's really well done. I love how Daphne at the end, when, she, when he's like, how do you feel? She's like, wonderful. Like she's just on cloud nine. That was the best thing that ever happened to her. I really enjoyed that. But the Duke has decided that he is not going to tell Daphne that he can physically have kids and just doesn't want to, which I've already talked about is an appalling decision. But his plan 
is to use... Not that there's a lot of contraception options. His plan is to pull out for the end of time and just hope that she doesn't get pregnant. Like, what? If that is your plan, if your plan, if you have made a sacred vow that you are willing to die for, that you are never having kids, you are, like, he needs to immediately have as little sex with Daphne as possible. Because this whole thing... I don't know what the odds are, the statistical probability, but if they, even if they, even if they have sex, like once every two weeks, from right now, Daphne is like what, eight, somewhere between 18 and 20, to the end of her ability to have kids, what is it, like 35, 40, like somewhere in there, I'm not sure, like, again, this is why I need a female co-host for these types of things, somewhere up there, for the next 20 years. It's a big risk. It's a huge risk. And almost certainly she will be pregnant at least once. So I just, it's so infuriating in the best way possible that his whole backup plan, his, the whole thing that holds his plan together is like, yo, I'm never going to have kids. I vowed, I promised she's never going to, I'm just going to pull out a lot. That's my whole plan. There's no, nothing else to it. That is my way of making sure she's never going to get pregnant because it's going to be awfully interesting if this doesn't work and she does get pregnant because then Daphne is going to have a lot of questions. And if you think Daphne is not going to be pissed off if she ever finds out the difference between can't like in this hypothetical situation where the Duke keeps thinking the pullout method's going to work wonders and then one day in the next 20 years it inevitably doesn't. Daphne's not just going to be pregnant and like she'll be stoked about it for sure. Then come the questions because she will have, if she's like, maybe Daphne won't, maybe, maybe this character, maybe I'm projecting myself onto Daphne a little bit. There's just a lot here. There's a lot here to digest. And I cannot believe that this whole deception is propped up by the reliability of the pullout method, which is completely ridiculous. All right. I think we made it to the end. Ugh. Just everyone take a deep breath. This episode has a lot of adult content. I think I tried to cover it delicately, but with a little bit of humor. I did my best. I really enjoyed this episode of Bridgerton. I just have so many questions, mostly in a good way, right? Daphne and Lady Bridgerton and Simon are all characters with flaws, and this is the point in the story where their flaws are unanswered, where I don't know what happens next, which leads me to be so frustrated with those flaws because they obviously lead somewhere, but where they lead, I don't know. And that's just, oh, so you just want to reach into the screen and shake them sometimes. Anyways, thank you guys so much for, for listening to this podcast. The support we've had so far on just the first four episodes has been absolutely unreal. Thank you so much. If you would like to reach out, you can email at Oh, sorry, not at email. Let's dive deep pod at gmail.com. Twitter is at let's dive deep. If you want to follow me on there so you can keep track of this podcast and the other podcasts um, I'm going to do after Bridgerton. Thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate all of you. I will see you in just a couple of days for the next episode where we talk about where we are going to talk about rather season one, episode six, which I'm sure and I'm hoping will be our first Hey, I'm hoping. I'm sure of it. We're on the upward. This episode 
was everything you needed to be above an eight and just not quite there in its execution. So I'm hoping we have our first at least 8.0 episode next uh, next episode, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a couple of days. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and as always, I will see you in the next one.